Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the uh, Press Gazette Journalism Matters podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Very nice of you to have me. Uh, nearly two years now as uh, chair of our industry watchdog. Yes, well, actually, I've been say. chair longer than two years because I was appointed before the before it was set up. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, it's come, and it's, so it's, it's and the body May, itself, really. It's coming up for its um, second anniversary yeah. in September. So, as you know, I'm a bit of a geek on these things, and I'm going to uh, ask you some questions about. Now you take a, <laughs> an enthusiastic concern, not a geek at all. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, independent press standards organisation. I'll yes. start with the first word, independent, which is the one I would take issue with. I'm not saying you're not independent, but I'm saying the um, if you look at the plumbing of the thing, uh, it's structure. N- structure, yeah. It's um, it's not. It's uh, has the capacity to be influenced by the industry. Well, so. I mean, if I can unravel that question, which is not an uncommon mm. accusation. I think it's really important to understand how this regulator works in a way that no press regulator ever has before, and that is through contract. In other words, those press that have the vast majority who have signed up to us have literally signed up. In other words, they've entered into a contract voluntarily, because otherwise it wouldn't be a contract in law. That was essential because... Ipso wouldn't have any enforceable powers, nor would those who have signed up have any obligations enforceable in the court of law unless they had made a contract. So you had to start with a contract, and they're not going to sign up to something with which they don't agree or in respect of which they can't foresee the consequences. So they set up a set of rules and regulations by which they were bound under contract. Now, of course... If you could have a system of press regulation controlled from the outside in the sense you didn't need a contract, you could just go straight to court and enforce it through statute, well, then you'd be able to say, yes, of course, it's uh, truly independent. But nobody is suggesting licensing or a system of statutory control, as far as I know, except those people who share the tastes of the Lubyanka in Russia. Yeah. Well, I suppose there is an argument, though, isn't there? and maybe I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, there's an argument that if you have a law that says, uh, that guarantees your independence, that makes you more independent than if you have uh, Whittingdale or whoever constantly hanging over you with this but sort you of... Could only, uh, you're imposing. absolutely right. But 
how do you devise such a law? It's simply, uh, how do you say, we will set up a regulator like Ofcom, like the Bar Standards Board, uh, like the uh, uh, you can say like the medical profession, like the dentistry profession. We will have a statute that says you're not allowed to call yourself dentist, doctor, or lawyer unless you comply with these rules. You could do that, but you could only do that by licensing. Nobody's tried to license the press since 1640. Yeah. So just so you're you're funded by this thing, the regulatory funding company. Well, but that's by the press that signed it up as Leveson Envisage. Yeah, which is the sort of the owners, isn't it? The publishers. So they. Um, so when it gets to the appointments panel, who appoints everyone, they uh, it must take into account the views of the regulatory yes. funding company. As to as to certain members in the minority, either of the complaints committee or of the board. But it seemed to me to be that, that, no, they're not representatives. After all, when you become a board member, you own independent obligations to the institution of which you're the board. So our board members, whoever they're nominated by, owe separate and distinct duties of good faith and obligation to us, even though they were nominated by different sections of the press. Those nominated by different sections of the press are in the minority. The others uh, chosen by us are, and they're all chosen by us, are have only, some of them have had previous experience of the press. But it would be mad to have a regulator. Surely you would accept of the press without people with close experience of working in the press. And I think it would be a very silly way to operate. And he, I mean, and I, I would say, you know, my personal opinion, I think it's you know, very effective, you're you know, very independent. But are you um, sure that it's the system's insulated against future backsliding? Because that's the big thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean... No, I am sure until the contract runs out, and yes. the contract runs out in 2020, I think they have to positively leave it, rather than if they say nothing, then they're still in it. And I think that one of the real challenges mm. is to ensure that they sign up again, and that the critics have to face. And those who say, well, you're not working, it's not doing what you promised it would do, and you're a complete failure, have to recognise how are they going to get a Another contract. Um, yeah, in- interesting. Uh, so, uh, what, so standards. So, so uh, press standards organisation. Do you think standards have improved over the last two years? Press standards demonstrably improved. The only way I can answer that question is by the observations of which were very familiar. That how we're operating now, and more importantly, how the newsrooms and the newspapers are operating, is radically different from the past. I think they take us much more seriously, they take our systems much more seriously, they take the importance of dealing with it speedily far more seriously, and they hate being dictated to by us when they've got something wrong. And I think that then leads to, as an important consequence, that they think far more seriously about what they're doing than they did before. Let me give an example. For example, in relation to subterfuge or or in relation to uh, an investigation which infringes somebody's privacy... When we challenge them with it and we ask, well, what did you think about? How did you possibly reach such a decision to publish or pursue such a story? 
they then set out for us as they're required to the processes they went went through before they reached such a judgment and I detect uh, and I am convinced that they are thinking in advance much more clearly uh, and much more rigorously than they ever did before. I mean, you're more familiar with the old days than I am, but the fact of the matter is that when a newspaper got a complaint under an old voluntary system which had no contract, no obligations, and no powers in the PCC, the great thing was to put it off, put it off, and hope that after six months the complainant would be exhausted and go away. That's simply not possible now. It it has to be dealt with first by the newspaper between the complainant with a maximum period of 28 days and thereafter it's ours. And I think the time that we take to... Everybody says when they win, oh, it took too long. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is that we get on with it and that seems to me a very big change in attitude to regulation. And so that when, I, when you ask... Uh, what do you think of the standards now? I, that's my answer, that there are far more rigorous internal processes that I believe they go through. And the... Because um, you say that, but then you look at sort of, say, you know, the Daily or the Telegraph, I think we do it, we give it a yes, tally. Yeah, we give it a tally too. <laughs> and I think they've had nine um, uh, breaches yes. of the code. And you have to wonder, well, if they, when they get the ninth or tenth breach to the code and they've got ninth or tenth... Uh, published adjudication. Are they, are they bothered? I mean, you know, are they, if they continue, continue doing it... Well, I think some of, the, some of the causes of those... Bit, one would have to analyse each breach, yeah. and they're, they're different ones. But a lot of them... I mean, you're more familiar with it than many of us here. A lot of them are due to editorial uh, errors. I mean, just sloppy thinking or carelessness by the sub-editors. I mean, not not a sort of deliberate malice and sometimes an exercise of poor judgment and of course if you're in a newspaper and you know this is better than I, struggling to maintain your manpower struggling to maintain your circulation, all these pressures uh, then create the sort of errors to which, which they speak. I mean I think tallies in numbers which we also monitor are important but they're not the whole answer. The, the much more important, I would have thought, of those is spotting and pursuing those who are deliberately flouting the editor's code. And, and you, I don't detect that the Telegraph is doing that worse than others. Yeah, and you get and you get, and you get the impression they do sort of care. It does. It does. It does bother them and irritate them when they get. When oh, they I get think it. they hate it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, like all uh, uh, those who purport to exercise power. I mean, the one thing they don't like is somebody telling them what to do. And one, one of the great surprises to me, because as you, you would appreciate as a judge, uh, we, we are hopeless at dealing in our, in our knowledge and familiarity and sensitivity to the media and to the press. Uh, what really surprised me was how sensitive they were if you started wagging your finger at them and uh, and we've seen it in some of the reactions to our adjudications we see it in the way during the period before we reach uh, a ruling we get sort of not as pompous letters as we get from complainants, but you know, letters from their managing editors and their lawyers. You know, how could you possibly think in all that sort of hyperbole? And they, they really hate it. And then, but when we say no, it's got to go on the front page, or this is what you've got to say. The remarkable thing is, and this I do think is a very big change, is that they then do it without further demur. Yeah.
And that is a key change from the PCC, isn't it? You can tell them exactly where to place. And in what terms and in what font size. And even the font size. Yes, because we we made that error uh, when we corrected the little story. Um, Then they did publish the correction we want, but in the tiny sort of jokey small print. So next time we learnt our lesson and said that, uh, no, this is the font size. And they do that. But it's, it is still a common um, complaint that the size of that um, adjudication and the prominence is nothing like the prominence of the initial things. You've got a big splash story. You've got well, a small thing on the yeah, front Well, they, they say, but we've still got it on the front page, dictated yeah. by us. And yeah. I, Nobody's ever had a front-page correction dictated by a regulator ever before. And, of course, it, the, you get the criticism, well, it's only a notice of correction. The actual adjudication is, is on another place. But I, there's a real difficulty, so the Complaints Committee think about, that the splash... On the front page is, after all, the editor's. That's how he. That that's his newspaper or her newspaper on that day, and therefore it's got to be a very extreme case before we make them put a headline on the front page, which we have done. So, so what about the sort of uh, cowboys in the unregulated uh, Wild West at the well, FT and the uh, Standard and the Guardian? Well, I'm glad you refer to them <laughs> as cowboys. <laughs> and the also, I guess. Uh, Maybe just as importantly, the likes of um, uh, kind of uh, Buzzfeed. Buzzfeed and or, oh, I, think, or I mean, I think they're two yeah. different th- things, but very important. So far as the the Guardian is concerned, I mean, before I ever applied for this job, I mean, one of the few editors I knew was Alan Rusbridger, and I talked to him about it, and 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 and, uh, and had very useful and helpful advice from him. And we went through a list of the sort of things that we ought to do before they would sign up, every one of which I think we've done. But it's quite apparent to me that they, not not, not so sure about the evening standard, but it's quite apparent to me that they don't want to join, and it goes back to this question of contract, because of their attitude to the others who have. So it's nothing to do with us or the way we're operating. It is entirely to do with their views. Now, I would express my views. I think that if the Guardian purports to be someone interested in raising press standards, I find it of an almost uh, unimaginable piety to say, well, we won't join in and try and improve it ourselves. I mean, why don't they want to nominate somebody to our board? Why don't they want to improve, if they think it can be improved, the editor's code? Why isn't there a member uh, of, the, of the Guardian on the editor's code committee? The answer is that they've made a commercial judgment that their readers and their constituents wouldn't like it if they joined us. But I repeat, I don't think it's anything to do with us. The FT is different. I mean, they announced very early on, well, we're not in newspaper an international organisation. But actually, and I speak to them, and I think we have very good relations with them, they have a very strict code that is very much stricter than ours because it's much more focused on financial probity. And they are, they're very well behaved, to be fair. Exactly. <laughs> but the, what about uh, you know, BuzzFeed? But the, the, there's a... You see, this is a really interesting aspect of media regulation that we are simply not beginning to grapple with, and that is the whole question of that which only exists online. I mean, I would love... I mean, they now have 
they regard themselves as an, editor, an editorialized uh, uh, dissemination of news and information and opinion with journalists. And, and I would love them to, and I would love them to sorry, join in BuzzFeed, yes. yes. And, and, and Am- there'll be lots of others, yes. Amazon. But I think the whole question of the regulation of the internet is, dare I say, more important than what we do uh, and what the press do. If you think, for example, I mean, how many people own smartphones now? Is it 2 billion? What is it going to be in 10, 10, 10 years' time? It's going to be 6 billion. Uh, how many people use the internet? And, uh, uh, and, uh, and that's when only half the world is literate and able to have access to it. So think what it's going to be like in 10 years' time, all of which, or nearly all of which, is only regulated by, the, by themselves, it, often with rules of which we have no knowledge, often manipulated in ways about which we know nothing about what comes first when you do a Google search. There are people working out algorithms to do that. And and that seems to me to present challenges of regulation summarised in a way one click away, which is a really important context in which we and the press that operate, that we are only beginning to grapple with. Uh, And we have real problems that we have to face and discuss about, you know, of the one-click-away variety, because, after all, if you're an editor of a newspaper, it isn't half galling to know that if you want to search out the thing that you, the editor, are forbidden for saying, that the person can do it. What about these uh, ultra-local publishers, then, the, uh, the ones that are signing up to Impress? Impressed, yes, uh, there are mean, about 30 uh, of those. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're not an um, inconsiderable you know, force, and they're growing, but the, um, the impression I get is that, actually, you're too expensive for them. So I think, the, uh, I think they, get, they, they, get, they get charged like the local press rate, which is... No, they, 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 most of it, they were yeah. subsidised, I think. Really? About, it's yeah. £50, a, it's something like £50 a year. I mean, it's, it's uh, because the money doesn't come, doesn't come from them. I mean, it's not what Leveson envisaged in a regular... In the, they're supposed to be paid by the regulators. That's they what the press is charging, yeah, so they're sort of... They're, they're, under, they're getting their money from somewhere else. But, they're under, but that's, they're sort of undercutting you, aren't they? But could you not offer those sort of community publishers a sort it's, of... It's a, not me. The, the, the finance comes from the rest of the press. But I don't think the problems that required a regulator to be set up yeah. were problems created by the, the bit of stone and by the ferret, were yeah. they? Yeah. And it would be very interesting to know how what breaches of whatever code they devise. I mean, I just don't... I mean, that organisation exists and they are very worthy uh, people that I know and respect merely as a trigger or vehicle to uh, in- ensure that the Court and Crimes Act is implemented. So let's um, get on to the Queen, Queen and the Sun. Uh, so um, the... Um, the Sun editor went on uh, the uh, Today programme the day yeah, after. That was remarkable, wasn't it? I wish I'd been allowed to go on and appear for him. I thought he was a lousy advocate. <laughs> he sounded sounded such bad, such bad defence. And the reason he was there, we obviously needled him so much. I mean, editors don't like going on broadcasts. He obviously felt the need, so nettled was he at what we've done, to put in his defence. So, they, so the, um, their front page, Queen backs, backs Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. You said... Uh, that's wrong. Uh, publish uh, uh, your adjudication on the front page and on page two. 
he goes on the telly, on the radio, and says, I don't agree with that. I would do exactly the same thing yeah, tomorrow. That, that's a complete misreading of it. I remember that being somebody else has said that. He would pub- what he meant was he published the story again which w- w- about which there'd been no adjudication. He wasn't saying he'd publish a misleading headline again. Oh, you think he, you think he wouldn't... He, I got the impression that he would publish the same headline again. No, I didn't, I didn't think he meant that. So you think... You think well, people he... always say silly things when they're being interviewed, as I, as I no doubt will know to my cost today. Yeah. So do you, do you think he has taken it on board? He has taken well, I think he, they hated it. Yeah. But they did it. They obeyed. Yeah. I mean, they, there was a. I mean, there were they. Uh, the negate the argument before we read our ruling. After all, there, anybody is allowed to put forward a defence was very vigorously vigorously conducted, and there's still people there uh, whose whose views I respect who think we got it wrong. Yeah. I mean, they they feel that. Um, it was unfair because you didn't take the whole thing in its entirety. They feel that we. It was. They thought that their defence was that this was a jokey piece of hyperbole. Nobody could have taken it seriously, and that's what we didn't agree with. But the. Uh, I mean, as I understand it, the palace, so the palace initially uh, complained about the whole thing, then narrowed their complaint to the uh, just the headline, on uh, after kind of advice from. So is that correct? No, no, that's completely wrong. That that was completely... I think, I don't remember the full nature of the original complaint, but it it, it, it was always a complaint about the headline, and they raised issues about the story, uh, but then they pursued the headline aspect of it. Nothing to do with advice from us or or our suggestion. And that was completely untrue. Okay. So um, it was a good good few months ago now, I think you appeared before um, the Lords Committee, was it? I remember and then you... the, 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 first of all the Lords, <laughs> and then the Commons uh, sort of a few weeks later. I remember you seemed quite um, sort of grumpy and frustrated with the because uh, you were trying to get these changes through, yes. and it seemed to be quite a frustrating process. It was. And I, wa- and I wondered at the time whether you would sort of uh, hang around, but you were obviously still here. I mean, uh, was there any well, a stage where you thought that you wouldn't be able to keep having your name at the top of this organisation if things didn't change? If at any stage I had thought that it's not going to be effective in the way that I and the others here uh, would have wished, I would have gone. I had simply no need. I mean, it didn't need to be here. And I'd never planned to be here. But it it never reached that stage. I mean, part of the... I don't think I was grumpy, at least I tried not to be. I mean, I was very nervous. You've got to remember, as a judge, nobody had ever questioned me for... I mean, since I was a barrister over 20 years ago. And so I found it an incredibly frightening experience, both on both occasions, worse than the Commons and the Lords. And sometimes I get overexcited when I'm nervous. Um, so, uh, whistleblowers hotline. We've we've sort of finally got that. It's got. It's running. better, but because it is now, uh, it, we looked at it, and we think we could do better, and we have done better by employing Crime Stoppers to to do it on our behalf. So it's now properly uh, twenty four hours and seven days a week, and uh, we require as part of our rules. Every newspaper has to draw it to the intention of their employees and has to allow them to use it. It still doesn't, of course, solve the age-old problem of whistleblowers 
and hotlines is how you really protect them afterwards because there's a terrible history of those whistleblowers who've suffered, particularly in the medical profession and, and of course, elsewhere but as a result of their courage. What I don't quite understand about the um, hotline, maybe you could explain to me, is what, what happens then once someone flags up uh, that they've been uh, put under pressure? What's the mechanism? Because I remember the old PCC, the Daily Express journalists got in touch and they said they felt they were under pressure to write anti-gypsy uh, uh, stories. And the, PC, the old PCC said, well, stroll on. It's nothing to do with us. That's not what we do. So if, you, see, if, the, if the Daily Express journalists got together today and said... Uh, you know, Richard Desmond's forcing us to write, um, you know, stories about saying how great his health lottery is or something. You know, what's what's the um, process then? What does what does it well, do? The, then Ipso would launch, uh, would ask questions and launch an investigation into it. And would it have the power to uh, unilaterally, you know? force uh, someone to change what they were doing or what they did? I think the sanction would be a standards investigation ending up with a fine. Possible fine. And uh, just on the standards investigation, so you've got the, I said the telegraph, I mean, it, like you say, it's a bit unfair for me to keep a tally because that doesn't really... Well, tell the, the tally might not, be the, <laughs> m- might not be a sufficient trigger under the rules for a standards investigation. Yeah. It's got to be a deliberate and systemic yeah. failure. Yeah, so I mean, but you what, could have a series of uh, errors of inaccuracy yeah. and misjudgment that suggests that there was insufficient rigour in the in the pre-publication assessment of whether something was accurate or not. So there could be a point where you had so many uh, adjudications you, you going could, against you. Yes, yeah. yeah, but no, no one's no one's quite. There well, one of the problems has been, as I think you're, you're aware, is that the system that was set up before we came into existence for standards investigation was so hedged with opportunity to obstruct and obfuscate and, and delay. For example, each time there was an investigation, a separate investigation panel had to be set up, which would have taken ages, and we'd have all been long since dead before we'd uh, succeeded. We succeeded in persuading the, uh, the those who signed up to change the contract. So we have got a system that would work now, but we've only just done that. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that. I'll, I'll lob in one fun question at the end. The, <laughs> That's the, a sinister. Um, the, uh, we, we've done some analysis uh, this morning showing the sort of um, well, incredibly strong uh, pro uh, Brexit. Bias, the national press. What's your, what's your view? Are you an inner or an outer? I shall tell you <laughs> privately uh, when you switched off the machine, and only on pain of <laughs> pain of death that you reveal. I'm I'm not allowed to say. Uh, I will say this about it. I think it is interesting that and it's obviously not the first time I detect. I don't know whether you detect it. A feeling by the public that they've been sold short on the quality of the debate and the quality of the material in respect to which they're supposed to make a judgment by both sides. And so there is, I mean, it, it seemed to me promising, perhaps, a sort of almost a rebellion, you know. We're fed up with the hyperbole from both sides and the exaggeration. And, uh, and, and that seems to me quite healthy going, as it were, overstepping the, the headlines in the newspapers, which merely reflect what the, the quality of the debate by the politicians. Yeah, well, I think I'd agree with you on that. I'm really... I've found it a deeply dispiriting experience um, about which I feel enormous, well, misery, really. <laughs> no. 
on that cheery note. <laughs> thank so I'm not indicating which way I, I would personally. Yeah. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on it was that, lovely to see our, you. our podcast. And uh, listeners can download the next edition uh, from Press Gazette in two weeks' time. Thanks very much. Thank you.